Coming up next on the XR for Business podcast, we have part two of the interview with Kent Bai from the Voices of VR podcast, the podcast that got me started in this industry. I'm actually one of the founding members of the OpenAR Cloud Group and Kronos Group is uh, is really kind of trying to pull together these standards for 3D as well for uh, e-commerce. I know there's a group right now trying to f- standardize 3D objects for e-commerce and retail because right now it's it's a dog's breakfast. Facebook uh, accepts GLTFs, uh, Hololens is FBX models, uh, VR is usually OBJs. So you have all these different 3D file formats. None of them really work well together, and you can't. It's not easy to convert one to the other. So, um, and then of course Apple came along and created USDZ, or in Canada USDZ. It's crazy right now to think that there's 15 different 3D model types, and it's kind of like we need to settle on the JPEG of 3D, whatever that happens to be. Which, well, in my opinion, it's probably GLTF. But I think we need to standardize that and, and just pick it so that. Can you imagine trying to send a photo to somebody and? you send it in one format and we saw this 10 years ago on the web and you just there was 10 different ways to send a photo in different formats and your camera would take one format and it wouldn't work with your macbook i think the tolerance for interoperability i think the world just demands interoperability now and and if you're not building for that well then you're going to end up like facebook and get broken apart yeah and i published a podcast with uh, kind of the managing director of open air cloud and one of the other founding members and yeah, they're talking a lot about these various different issues. So yeah, it's it's something that you don't see necessarily a lot of news on until unless you're sort of deep into the weeds of helping design these protocols. But I, I did go to the uh, Decentralized Web Summit last year. And one of the things that I saw was that there's kind of like this pendulum that swings back and forth between the centralized systems and the decentralized systems. And I'd say that with the cryptocurrency, with like the containers, uh, being able to take different aspects of the server and be able to push it out to the edge, uh, have it self-contained within either Kubernetes or Docker containers, and just in general, kind of like a movement away from like centralized systems into more decentralized architectures. That's like an interesting trend that I think that paying attention to the rise of the decentralized web and what that is going to afford, I feel like it's a lot more about open protocols and collaboration and having people collaborate in different ways. And that's the thing that I'd say has been a little bit lacking within the VR and AR industry. I mean, there's been a certain amount of, of not sharing of knowledge, but in terms of like real meaningful collaboration, there's been a few things like OpenXR and, and WebXR are one of the big standouts, um, as well as probably the, the Chromium browsers that a lot of different companies are working on. But in terms of like specific things to grow an ecosystem, um, it's been difficult for companies to figure out what does it mean to grow a community and what does it mean to grow an entire ecosystem that you may be a part of. And I feel like the cryptocurrency world, it has had to deal with that a little bit in the sense that they're creating these open protocols and they have to like prove that there's a buy-in to people participating in these different protocols and are going to be able to have these different use cases. And so I feel like there's a, this metaphor of the blue ocean and the red ocean where right now there's so much opportunity for these immersive technologies that it's really a a chance for people to collaborate and to work with other people on these big initiatives and that you could actually do a lot of really big, important things together. Uh, And then eventually you'll get to the, it being a red ocean where in order for you to get a client, you have to take it away from somebody else. 
with the blue ocean is that there's such an abundance of opportunity that you getting business can actually help other people also getting business just because it's kind of promoting the overall industry in general. And so I feel like that it, there was a bit of like a real openness, but yet right now in the whole XR industry, there's a bit of like with the launch of the Oculus Quest, it's starting to get locked down a lot more. There's starting to be a little bit more of like trying to grab and own different aspects of the platform. So I see we're kind of in this shift moving more towards the kind of a red ocean mindset, but yet still have a... It's it's still too early to be moving there. I know it's still, and that's sort of like why I wanted to bring up these kind of di- dynamics and tensions, because the there is value of having like a very good user experience with something like the Quest or the iPhone is also a very closed platform compared to like say Android, but the user experience on the iPhone is arguably better than the Android, and the user experience on the Quest is going to be better than pretty much any other competitor that's out there at this point. Until we have something meaningful come from HTC Vive with the Focus or Focus Plus. So I see that it, there's this kind of pendulum that swings back and forth, and that, like, yes, we have the Quest, it's going to be more of a closed platform, but eventually there's going to be something that comes out there that's going to be a little bit more open, and there's going to be new affordances that are given with that. So as people are trying to like navigate this, I, I think it's just important to kind of notice these big, large swings, whereas right now, Things are moving more towards the closed and more centralized proprietary, but there's also a lot of the future of technology that's being developed right now is trying to support and sustain these completely decentralized systems. I, I hope we we move to a, an open system because just from a practical standpoint, if I'm wearing a pair of AR glasses and I'm walking down the street, I don't want to have to close an app, open another one, get it to do whatever it is, and then close that one and go back to it. Like, I don't have tabs. I just want everything to work seamlessly around me as I move through my life. And the only way to do that is through open systems. Yeah. How do you manage and maintain if there is just one platform like the web, then on the web, you have a URL, which is you're going to a location, but in the real world, you have a GPS with an altitude. So a, a geopositional, where you're at in space and time, essentially. Well, and they can owns- use photo recognition or image recognition to really triangulate down to centimeters where you are. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of like stuff to still be fleshed out in terms of the AR cloud, the open AR cloud. I think it's actually healthy to have a competition. And I don't think it's reasonable to only have open because you have to have what's even possible. And usually what's possible is defined by those closed systems. And sometimes there's these different trade-offs. Open source projects, they move slower, they're more buggy, they have a worse user experience. And so you have more freedom and control. And some people they opt to run Linux because of that. But there's a lot of people that decide to run a Mac or Windows just because they don't have to deal with all the thrashing. So I feel like there's always going to be these trade-offs between the closed and the open. I just want to promote whatever the polarity point is because (laughs) if it's too much of one, then we need to have kind of the both to be able to be in this conversation of competition. And I think it's healthy to have those competitions in many different perspectives. But I tend to certainly be biased towards the open systems as well. Well, I I think... It's it's an interesting position in, in time where we are right now, where you talk about kind of the blue ocean, red ocean. And up until now, I've seen just almost everybody in this industry collaborate with one another. You phone somebody, ask them for help, they're able to offer it. And only recently have I realized that some companies, they're not giving out their metrics around their success. So they, maybe they try VR training, for example, and they're seeing some really good traction but they won't release it as a case study because they're seeing that as a technological advantage to their business. Others are, hey, let's 
tell everybody this because it'll drive the price of developing this down for everybody and everybody will win. So you kind of have both of those mindsets. Macy's started using VR for uh, furniture sales and they're seeing an average, this is average across 100 stores, 45% increase in basket size and cart sizes using VR. Wow. The degree to which that people are sharing this information, I think it's always been variable. I think we've been in a very... Actually, if anything, a way more open time in the history of VR than we've ever had, mm-hmm. um, because all throughout the 90s, uh, up until Laval Virtual in France has been running for the last 21 years. Um, and when I go to different academic conferences like the IEEE VR and talk to different academics, there's been a very robust ecosystem of VR that's been happening in Europe consistently over the last two decades plus uh, in aerospace and automobile industries. But what I heard from academics was they don't talk about it because of that very reason and because it did give them a competitive advantage. So I still think that there's a a certain amount of things that people won't or can't talk about. Uh, Right now in Hollywood, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in virtual production. And, you know, I've done some interviews on that, but mostly there's a lot of people that just aren't talking about what's happening in Hollywood and the changes that are happening in part because it's a little bit of trying to position yourself to be able to own the, the the entire virtual production pipeline or the, the ecosystem there because there's already a lot of uh, visual effects shops and there's been a sea change in terms of how visual effects are happening on set, probably starting at least with uh, Ready Player One and, and Steven Spielberg with the extent to which that virtual reality technologies were being used on the set in Hollywood. Uh, so I feel like that there's always going to be those realms in which there's going to be things that are a little bit harder to get access to. Another big example is what's happening in the military. Uh, it's very difficult to have somebody from the military tell you specifically what they're doing because not only is it just, <laughs> it starts to become like a national security risk at that point, but it just gets harder to get specific details about what type of training is happening. But VR has been funded since like the sort of Damocles, the DARPA has been involved with funding VR innovation and technologies consistently for the last 50 plus years. And Tom Furness, one of the pioneers of VR, was in the Air Force. And at the same time as Ivan Sutherland was doing all this pioneering work, uh, but he was quietly working in the Air Force doing all sorts of applications up until the late 80s. Uh, and then he went to go start the Hit Lab in Washington. But there's still a lot that has likely been happening within the military realm that we still have no idea what's happening. So I feel like that's a little like par for the course. And I do as much as I can to find these people and talk to them. But... I find any publicly traded company, it's difficult for them to talk about things without getting approval from their PR because it starts to then become a potential impact on their stock prices. And then you have this whole layer of public relations that has to help mediate that. And they're pretty risk averse. So I feel like if you're a startup company, there's less risk. Uh, But I would personally encourage any company that's working on stuff that want to talk about things, I usually solely focus on talking to people face-to-face at conferences. So I'd encourage them to either come on your podcast to talk about it or find me at a conference. And I'd be more than willing to, to talk more about all the stuff that maybe isn't getting a lot of other press coverage, because I do think it's important to have these conversations. I mean, that's why I do the podcast, because I feel like there's so much value of being able to like actually have a consistent conversation as to what's happening just to give people an access point to keep up to date as to how all this is unfolding. It's happening and it's happening fast. It's funny, it's happening slow and fast at the same time. When you started your podcast in, uh, what, 2014? Yeah. 
when you started doing your first podcasts, I'm assuming that you thought things would happen faster than they did. And then they took longer, but then at the same time, they're moving crazy fast. So I think investors, VCs got in really early and they piled all this money in expecting these huge returns and, and it wasn't there. And then they, you know, kind of had these false starts and we, but the false starts are getting shorter and shorter in between each false start, which means we're kind of coming to this crescendo of technology. So I'm excited. Well, if you look at the Gardner hype cycle, there's a sort of the initial proof of concept and then that has a certain level of hype of what is made possible. And then you have this real realization of like, oh, well, that's what's possible, but we're a long ways away from that. So then you have the trough of disillusionment and then you have the slow climb towards this kind of eventually the plateau of productivity. But I feel like VR has gone through two or three hype cycles since the 60s and then the 90s, it really had this huge hype cycle. And we're, we're kind of in this arguably third or fourth wave of VR now. And I expect that... Uh, Gartner doesn't even put virtual reality on its emerging technology because it doesn't really consider it to be emerging anymore. It's no, kind of established. Emerged. <laughs> it's, it has emerged. And so it's like, it's a proven technology that's, that already has so many different compelling use cases that it's not even really considered emerging anymore in terms of the scope of technology, which is a great sign. And I think augmented reality has always been kind of trailing behind in terms of it getting to that point of really being useful. I think AI combined with AR is going to be helping push it. And so there's like these, these dual innovations that are happening that are really going to get AR to that point. But looking at these different uh, cycles and a big question in the consumer space is when is it going to become mainstream? As I go to these different developer conferences, I go to like Facebook F8 or Microsoft Build or Google IO. These are like the major tech companies. And then there's Amazon, they have Sumerian, you have Apple with AR Kit. Pretty much every major tech company right now is doing some foundational work and to be able to create this spatial computing like paradigm shift. So for me, it's not a matter of when, but it's a matter of if. And part of the reason why I say that is because some of the most interesting and more most difficult problems are still in the realm of spatial computing, artificial intelligence, the blending of artificial intelligence with spatial computing, because you can start to create virtual environments that are able to train AI neural networks that end up being the exact same neural network architecture and weightings. So you can train a robot in, in VR and then take that same training and put it into an actual robot. And you're able to then basically do an accelerated version of spatial training for some of these objects. Doing that a lot for... Wow, I never thought of that. For doing like, um, for cars, training these no. uh, self-driving cars and whatnot, you're able to, and you're able to accelerate it because you're, because it's sort of a, a real-time environment, you're able to do these virtual simulations. And so because of that, there's kind of like this sisterhood of experiential technologies between artificial intelligence and virtual and augmented reality. Because of that, um, there's kind of a co-evolution that's happening. Um, you start to see like some of these use cases for virtual reality drive the need to push computer vision or push pose detection or uh, doing the tracking algorithms. I mean, just from what the Quest is able to do as a self-contained VR headset, that is in a large part for a lot of the AI innovations that a lot of those algorithms may have not even existed like five years ago in terms of the deep reinforcement learning and deep learning uh, approaches to computer vision that have been innovated and having these huge, huge breakthroughs. So those huge breakthroughs are actually being applied and deployed into these immersive technologies. So for me, I just see that it's not a matter of like if, but but when. 
And I tend to put it around like 2025 is when I feel like that's going to be sort of like a critical mass when all of these things are just going to be completely like all over the place. It's going to be a little bit of like how we've been about five years in. I've been doing the podcast uh, May 19th, 2014 is when I went to the Silicon Valley Virtual Reality Conference. And we're coming up on five years from that. So another like five to six years from now, I feel like it's going to be a similar like we went from the Oculus DK1, the first developer kit, three DOF, really low res, screen door, kind of made you motion sick, to now all of a sudden a self-contained, very high resolution, six degree of freedom, self-contained, tetherless virtual reality system that you could take on the go. And that's like an enormous, like for anybody that's in the VR industry, it's like, it's taken forever. But on the relative like anthropological scale of humanity, <laughs> that's really fast. And what the innovations that we're going to see for the next five years, I think are going to be just as impressive. Yeah, I think it's just going to get faster and faster. And I never even thought about neural nets for for vehicles using virtual environments to train the neural net. Like it's just, it's this kind of crazy exponential feedback loop, which will just make the technology faster and faster and faster. And the singularity might be the point where computers are outthinking mankind, but I see it as kind of the point where all of these technologies enter the the exponential phase where it just goes straight up. And you you say kind of 2025 when they all converge. Think about it, even if it's 2030, that's 10 years away from now. And we can't even we can't even remotely fathom what the world will be like in the next 10 years. Well, so that that's where I disagree. And the reason why I disagree is because you have to look at it through the human experience. And I feel like the human experience is there's certain things that we know are going to be a part of the human experience and that these technologies are in service of the human experience. And so whether it's like having entertainment, dealing with medical issues, connecting to our partners, dealing with grief or connecting to your sense of deeper purpose or spirituality or religion or philosophy, what we do for our careers and our work, what we're doing and how we connect to our friends and our family being able to deal with isolation and to not feel exiled and to feel connected, the way that we express our identity, the way that we have commerce and exchange value with each other, the way we communicate with each other or we learn and we teach each other about higher education as well. Uh, and then being able to like connect to our home and family, that's a spectrum where I could be pretty sure that the human experience is still gonna involve all of those things. And that if anything, the augmented and virtual reality technologies are going to still augment what it means to be human. And in fact, it, it may expand the whole sensory input of, of all the different ways in which we can experience things, because it's a big thing about expanding our senses. And if we are the essence, if the human experience is the synthesis of all of our sensory input, then VR affords us to put new sensory input that we could never have. So we can start to develop completely new senses that we didn't have before. And people have already been able to do that by turning their torso into an ear, by rewiring, taking audio sounds, transmitting it into different haptic feedback onto your body. And then if you can't hear, you can get that data information that is getting into your brain that's in the same data structure as what the cochlea would be presenting. And your brain kind of figures it out. Your brain is very plastic and being able to take input from just about any source, as long as it's in the right format, and the brain can start to discern those signals, then you start to expand senses and augment senses. So I feel like that's that's a realm where we don't quite know 
what's possible of like what's the whole human potential. But I do think that we're going to still have the the fundamental aspects of the human experience that have never changed. And that's why I tend to look at technology through the lens of the human experience rather than through the lens of technology itself, because yes, there are going to be all these amazing technological advances. And I don't necessarily see technology as ever going to be able to achieve the same level of consciousness and human awareness as a human. That's debatable as to whether or not we're going to have hard AI. But for me, I tend to say that human consciousness is something that's very unique to humans and that it's emergent from our organic bodies and our life experiences. It's going to take a long time and there might be ways of mimicking it, but it's going to be kind of like uh, just mouthing of those emotions rather than the full experience of those emotions by the technology or the AI. Um, so that's at least how I, I think about it. And I think by doing that, it, it sort of recenters it through the lens of the human experience and puts the humans first because the risk of thinking that the technology is going to be smarter than us is that you start to create this hierarchy where we're in service to the technology, which I think is not the point. I think that the technologies always needs to be in service of humans. And if it's not, then something has gone seriously wrong. Well, I think the problem isn't that the technology will be in the service of technology, or it will be that the technology will be employed by a very small few to leverage its potential against other humans. And that's that's the problem. It's never going to be the technology that overtakes us. It's that some people will have control of such vast amounts of technology that they'll be able to take advantage of the rest of humanity. That's what I worry about. Yeah, that's a huge thing that I worry about as well, because I do, I totally agree with that. And I do think that both virtual and augmented reality, as well as artificial intelligence, as well as all of these other exponential technologies, frankly, they are forcing us into a paradigm shift where it's like a reflection over things that are not working. And that we have to kind of like upgrade our operating system for how we relate to each other, the type of decisions we make, the the way that we run our economies, the way that value is exchanged. Like at so many different levels, there's a reevaluation. If we have all the thing, all the existing structures, then we are going to create this situation where these big major companies basically have like complete and total control over everything, which I think is a huge danger, which I, I think we're on that trajectory, but that's why I advocate so strongly for these decentralized systems, because we need these other open decentralized alternatives so that we don't have these handful of small companies that are controlling everything. Well, I think we're, we're already in that position where we've got Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Walmart. These companies are arguably larger than most states, uh, most uh, countries in the world and their GDP. And so the influence and power that they hold are astronomical and the distribution of wealth is actually narrowing. It's getting worse. And I think we need a complete reset of a lot of different things. And my purpose in life is to inspire and educate future leaders to think and act in a socially, economically, and environmentally responsible way, because the way we continue to do our business, if we don't fundamentally look at things from the three fundamentals of social, economic, and environmental, uh, and start evaluating our businesses based on those rather than just the one value of measure, and that's economic, then I think we're going to run into a brick wall with the earth itself, the, the planet itself. And people are like, oh, we'll move to Mars. What the hell would you want to move to Mars? We have a perfectly good planet right here. We have to uh, take care of one another and this planet as one unit and I think uh, these technologies will start to strip away at the idea of borders and uh, they'll either make them stronger or they'll actually make them 
less impactful because at the end of the day, we're all humans and we're all here to work together as one entity. And I, I think virtual and augmented reality and, and artificial intelligence really have the potential to give us one thing that I think is the greatest existential risk we've ever faced, and that's uh, the lack of education as we move into exponential technologies. And uh, with that, I, I want to <laughs> I want to just ask you the question that you ask everybody at the end of your podcast. I'm going to ask it here because I think it's uh, it's a fitting uh, tribute to the Voices of VR podcast. Which, if you're listening to this podcast, and you made it this far, then you will absolutely love the Voices of VR podcast. In your opinion, Kent, what is the ultimate potential of virtual reality? Well, I think at the heart, what virtual and augmented reality technologies allow us to do is to connect more to ourselves, connect more to each other, connect more to the planet, and to connect to all levels of reality. I feel like there's going to be a certain level of, of self-awareness and contemplation where we were just kind of talking about all these different moral dilemmas. And the thing about VR and AR is that it's like the world's most liberating education platform that's going to unlock all this human potential that we didn't even know was possible. But it's also like the world's worst surveillance technology, um, especially if it's in the wrong hands. So I feel like it's it's in this really strange position for anybody that's in VR and AR is that you are dealing with these huge major companies that may or may not have your best interest in mind. And so you see all this deep potential for what's possible, but yet at the same time, there's so many like ethical and moral compromises that the existing business models of surveillance capitalism have. But I feel like that's kind of like a sign of the times is like these moral dilemmas where you everybody has to navigate their own ethical framework for how they're going to participate in bringing about change. And for me, I've decided to try to embrace the technology rather than reject it because I feel like the potential for what amazing things it's going to allow us to do, that potential is just so exciting that I feel like we're going to have to create new things that don't exist right now. Because one of the things that I asked one of the co-founders of the internet, Vint Cerf, I ran into him at the Decentralized Web Summit and I was really curious because he works at Google. I was like challenging him. I was like, hey, Vent, don't you think that Google should stop maybe doing some of this surveillance capitalism because it's really a pernicious uh, business model? And his response was really interesting because he was like, you know, he's somebody who like helped invent the internet and he's deciding to work with Google. Why? Because he can make more difference within than without. Well, he sees that Google's been able to provide universal access to human knowledge for free to everybody in the world. And they do that. They actually do do that. And if you can find another way to pay for that at scale, then go ahead and do that and compete with them. <laughs> at this point, nobody has thought of that yet. And I feel like that is like a huge opportunity, but it's also a huge challenge because there's all sorts of economies of scale that happen with having a centralized power like that. And it really what it takes is a huge consciousness transformation for people to start to collaborate. And if we are going to have something that's going to be an antidote to these big major companies, we're going to have to work together. We're going to have to collaborate and work together. Talking to Anang Agarwala from Spatial, he said, a big thing that they see in Spatial is to think about when you're looking at a basketball team or a hockey team, and they're all like, in synchrony with each other and they're collaborating, but they're not speaking, they're just speaking non-verbally with their bodies, then the spatial computing technologies is going to be able to enable that for humans at scale. So what is it gonna mean for us to be able to actually 
work together and build things that would be impossible for us to build on our own. That's the true potential. Uh, and then the reason why we can't think of the business model yet is because we haven't seen what's possible when we have people at scale being able to work and collaborate with each other. And I feel like that's what the AR and VR technologies are going to enable. And that once we see that, then we're going to maybe find out some of these completely new paradigms that we're in the midst of needing. Because frankly, I feel like we're on a brink of cultural and economic collapse on so many levels. I mean, sort of the, the haves and have nots and the different polarizations that are happening in our world are getting so extreme that we really need some ways that we can find common ground and work together. And I feel like if, if things do come to pass where there's some sort of like crisis point, then it's going to be through these new emerging technologies, the VR and AR and AI and cryptocurrencies, like the technological architecture actually affords completely new ways of doing things that have never been possible before. And that the thing that is really going to shift for that is human consciousness, both at an mm -hmm. individual and collective layer. So I see that there's these huge like philosophical and cultural and economic shifts that need to happen. And that VR and AI and AR are all arriving just in time on the brink of collapse yep. because we're going to need all of the potentials of what these technologies can do to be able to form the future that, that really works for everybody. It's interesting that you, you say that because I've been working on something uh, and I've never you know, really talked about uh, to too many people, but I'll, I'll uh, share it here because uh, I, I see these technologies exactly what you said. They will be able to kind of, I don't want to say save us because that's not the right word, but they will be able to unlock empathy at a scale and, and collaboration at a scale that we've never been able to understand. And I actually just wrote an article uh, about can virtual and augmented reality democratize education? And really what I've been working on is a completely new education system from the ground up that basically scraps the entire, uh, not scraps it, but just utilizes it. So you already have an existing education system that teaches math and science and geography and these kind of transactional skill sets. But what we're missing is more of the the soft skill sets, the, the mindset skill sets that really will unlock our full potential as humans, things like gratitude, mindfulness, creative problem solving. These are things that if we don't start teaching those, so, so simple as financial management, for whatever reason, we don't really teach financial management in any level of school. And it, it's it's kind of a, a leftover from slavery days where we didn't give anybody education. We kept it from them because they kept them in check. And keeping financial education from people, especially kids, keeps them in check. And then they go get a job and they work and they're on this treadmill working for slave labor. And there's got to be a point where we start to unlock the education of success principles rather than something you can look up in your phone. Because Snapchat now has a filter where I can point my phone at a math equation, it'll solve it for me. So there are certain transactional skill sets that are not overly uh, necessary in today's fully connected world, but the fundamentals of success, being able to focus yourself, meditate, communicate with other people, these are fundamental and goal setting and marketing communications, being able to create products and services that serve humanity. And instead of asking children what job they want to get, we need to be asking what problem do you want to solve or what you want to give back to humanity. And I think that is the fundamental shift that needs to happen. And these technologies can deliver that. Yeah, it's, it's going to be opening up. Right now, if you can listen to someone lecture at you and you learn really well, you can do great in school. But 
if you're an active learner, if you need to have an experience, if you need to play around with things, if you need a story, if you need to be emotionally engaged, there's so many different learning temperaments that are not being served right now by the current educational system. So I do think that there's going to be a complete revolution for education. And yeah, I, th I feel like for me, I've recorded well over 1,100 interviews at this point, uh, focusing a deep dive into the kind of the evolution of thought within a very specific technological community for the last five years. And I, I feel hampered by the linearity of an RSS feed uh, for how people consume that information because I will go and record 15 to 30 interviews over the course of a few days and I'll come back and people can only really listen to a couple of them. But what would it look like to go into a, a, a spatialized memory palace to be able to actually have an architecture that represents the knowledge that has been captured? And if there's AI to help automatically transcribe it and to come up and perhaps find these different links between information, then you start to see how you have these memory palaces where people can go and have like an interactive learning experience, like going to the Exploratorium in San Francisco, you can learn all about physics and these different more active interactive games that allows you to learn about things. And I feel like all of education is going to be turning into that. So yeah, I feel like we're right on the cusp of how these spatial computing technologies are going to like transform all dimensions of our reality. And what I'm seeing is this trend of cross-disciplinary collaboration. So people from all sorts of different disciplines starting to work together, whether it's people from like the psychedelic culture with like meditators on top of like immersive technologists, trying to look at things through the lens of human experience to be able to then maybe create a virtual reality application to be able to then modulate someone else's human experience to eventually help transform and help them grow. Uh, and the same thing for this sort of workshop that I'm going to, that's going to be in New York City, it's going to have like these cutting edge neuroscientists that understand human perception, working with game designers who really understand human agency. And the game designer is going to be able to learn from the neuroscientists to know how to better modulate the human attention and perception based upon what neuroscientists know about human perception. And then the game designers are going to be able to help design experiments that are going to help the neuroscientists learn a lot more about the nature of the mind. So I feel like there is this kind of fusion of all of these different disciplines that are happening right now, and it's all being seen through these immersive technologies. It could be that the human experience ends up being the lingua franca between all these different domains. And that's what I find really exciting is because we need to have those philosophical frameworks to help understand how we can pull all these things together because we have had a very siloed sort of reductive way of approaching life. And I feel like this shift that we're moving into right now is trying to synthesize all these things together and bring all these different component parts together and to, to sort of synthesize it through the lens of human experience. And for me, that it, it's so exciting to cover because it, it allows me to basically talk to just about anybody and it, it can end up being about VR because it's about human experience. And that's, if anybody is in this realm, there's a boundless ways that you can start to learn about pretty much <laughs> every different domain. And so if you are a lifelong learner, you can learn about game design or architecture or colors or human stories or education. There's just like, it's just unlimited. Both VR and AR and AI are just, if you like to learn, then this is a great place to be right now. Yep. When I got into this industry, I had no idea what to build, so we built everything. We actually came up with a moniker. We do everything, E-V-R-Y thing. <laughs> that's not the best for a business model, but it does keep things interesting, that's for sure. <laughs>
I, I want to thank you so much, Kent, for, for taking the time on this podcast. It has been absolutely wonderful speaking with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Alan. And I should also just send out a shout out to my Patreon members. I am a listener-supported podcast. And so if you want to support the work that I'm doing, you can support me at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. Thanks a lot. And that concludes part two of the XR for Business podcast with guest Kent Bai from the Voices of VR podcast. Make sure you check out part one of this episode for more information about all things XR related with Mr. Kent Bai. Being an influencer on LinkedIn in the XR field uh, really has opened up an opportunity for us to not only understand what corporations are looking for in virtual augmented mixed reality and artificial intelligence, but also from the aspect of the startups, studios, developers, and enthusiasts out there and what they need. So what we decided to do after getting hundreds and hundreds of messages is to open up XR Ignite to the entire XR community of startups, studios, individuals, passionate people, and really to build a new community that brings together everybody who's passionate about this technology for a low cost and allow them to contribute, to learn, and to get better across the whole industry. That is really the reason why we started XR Ignite, to hyper-accelerate the XR for business industry, business and education. And one of the things that we just keep noticing is that there's so many resources out there. There's the VRAR Association, which we're partners with. There are you know, reports coming out daily, but there's no one source where people can come together and start just having conversations around how to get better in this industry. And that's why we started XR Ignite. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're in the corporate side, if you're a startup, if you're an individual, if you're an enthusiast, sign up today at xrignite.com and you'll be getting access to new reports, investor lists, media lists, exclusive content, interviews with our mentors. We have over 56 mentors. And if you're a startup and you pay an annual fee, you'll actually have the opportunity to book a one-on-one, -on -one, one hour call with one of the mentors. What we're doing with that is we're actually recording those sessions. We're transcribing them, taking out any personal information, and we're making those transcripts available to all members. So I think XR Ignite is gonna drive a lot of value for anybody in this industry who's looking to up their game and also for corporates who want a real insight as to what technology is coming out. So I would encourage everybody to sign up at xrignite.com and I really look forward to driving value, executing on our mission to hyper-accelerate XR for business and education.